Well, hello to everyone online. It's great that you can join us today as we continue to work through Luke's Gospel. We're looking at this chapter 16 today, and it may seem a strange chapter to talk about our wealth and money um, in this period of economic downturn in our nation. Uh, lots of people uh, are struggling now with employment. There's lots of financial hardship, and so it seems very untimely uh, that we might talk about such a topic. But in God's providence, he's brought us to this section. We planned uh, working through Luke 13 to 16 some 12 months ago now. And this happens to be where we come to today. And God's word's always timely in its own way. And it's always going to challenge us and strengthen us and encourage us. And so I'm going to pray in a moment that though we're looking at a topic at a time when people may feel that it's hard to consider that, uh, given their strain upon us all, um, let's pray that God will help us as we look at his word uh, together. Please join me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather today. We pray that you might instruct us now by your spirit, apply your words to our hearts and minds, that we might respond rightly in repentance and faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 496 AD, Clovis, who was king of the Franks, decided that he and 3,000 of his men in his army would be baptized because he understood the Christian God to have helped him win a great victory over a neighboring tribe. But legend has it that when he and his men were baptized, uh, they kept their right arm away from any water because they wanted to continue to fight as pagans post their baptism. And so they didn't want that to be influenced in their future battles. Well, it just illustrates a point, a misconception that believers can have at times, uh, that somehow we might limit the lordship of Jesus to particular areas of our life. As we come to this first part of Luke chapter 16, uh, we're considering the very practical issue of our attitude to money, to wealth more broadly, and how Christians' attitudes should be different to that of the world. Now, there are two things that we need to grasp before we look at such a topic. And the first is this that we are all wealthy. Wealth is a relative concept, but because we live in Australia, we're part of the 5 or 10% wealthiest people on the planet. And so we need to keep that in mind, even as we perhaps look at our own means and think that uh, we don't have much to consider in terms of being generous. Secondly, we need to consider that our wealth is not our own, that everything we have has been given to us by God. And so... Psalm 24 verse 1 will tell us uh, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So we need to keep this in mind. Everything that we have, including the breath that we're taking in this moment, as a gift from God. It's his rather than ours. We're merely stewards or managers of that which, is in, that which he has entrusted to us. And so we need to have that mindset as we come to a passage such as today's, that we're not owners, we're managers of God's resources. So the question that I want us to consider today is this, how are we to use God's resources? How are we to use them? We're answerable to God, he has entrusted us with whatever we have. And so we need to think hard about this issue. How are we to use God's resources that he's given to us? Well, the first answer to that question that flows out of our passage today is by being shrewd managers. We're to manage God's resources by being shrewd managers. 
Turn with me to Luke 16, verses 1 to 9. Now notice in verse 1, at the start of this passage, that uh, Jesus is telling this section to his disciples. He's recounting this parable to them. But we also know as we get to the end of the passage in Luke 14 that the Pharisees have been listening in as this discussion has unfolded. And the parable is all about a manager who assesses his situation shrewdly. He's accused of wasting his master's possessions in verse 1. And so he assesses his situation in verse 3 and acts in a way in light of his imminent sacking. Notice from verse 3, The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He's basically saying, Well, I've got very limited job prospects as soon as I lose this position that I hold. And so he determines in verse 4, uh, that in order for people to welcome him into their houses, for him to be supported financially, perhaps even be given a job by them, so that he might avoid manual labor or begging, he's going to act in a way that will see them love him and welcome them in. And so in verses 5 and 6 we read, So he called in each of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 1,500. And so he acts towards his master's debtors so that they're going to owe him a favour once he's fired. He calls in several of his master's debtors and he cuts their debts sometimes in half. And after his great generosity with somebody else's wealth, his master's wealth, his Shrewd actions of looking to his own future are then commented on. We get his master's assessment of the situation in the first part of verse 8. Notice the master states, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now I think we're shocked by this assessment at this point. But notice there's a world of difference between that statement and what I'm about to read. The master commended his dishonest manager, because he had acted dishonestly. Now, it's not dishonesty which is being commended here. The Lord Jesus makes it clear that the master is commending the quality of shrewdness. And if we were to define that word, it would be something like uh, cunning or crafty or clever or astute. That's the meaning here. What is being commended is his astuteness. There's no sense that that makes up for his dishonesty or that he's a commendable person. He's a bad man. He's a dishonest man. But even such a bad man can offer an example to us. Now, I think this is why Christians have traditionally struggled with this passage. It's this aspect that we have a problem with. How can Jesus point us to a dishonest pagan as an example? Well, sinners can still demonstrate a principle from which we can learn. Remember that this is a parable. It's a constructed story. And so what we need to do is wait for the punchline that Jesus is about to give, to grasp this quality of shrewdness with money that Jesus is explaining. Well, notice what that punchline is in the remainder of verse 8 and then verse 9. We read, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, 
so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is effectively saying here, learn from the shrewd managers. Look at the Murdochs or the Reinhardts of today. What can we learn from these people who amass a lot of wealth and who do not waste assets? But notice in verse 8 that Jesus is stating that people of the light or believers are not as shrewd. So the inference here is that we're clumsy. We're less effective in the management of the resources that God has given to us. And Jesus tells us what we should be doing in verse 9. Notice there, he gives us the application of verse 8. What are we to do then? Well, we should be very generous with our master's wealth. You know, like the servant, the money we are stewards of is not our own. It's our master's or God's who dwells in heaven. And so we're to use God's resources that he's blessed us with to win friends, which really in this context is to win people for the kingdom of God, to see people hear the gospel as we await our welcome into heaven by God. That is, one day, if we have placed our trust in the Lord Jesus, when we go to be with him, we will receive the words, as we're told elsewhere in Scripture, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, please note that we don't earn our way into heaven by being generous with our money or by helping win others to Christ. The point is that Jesus' followers must use their money for spiritual purposes just as wisely as unbelievers do for their material aims. So we're not aiming to be welcomed into an earthly house like the dishonest servant. We're awaiting our welcome into heaven, which has been secured by faith and faith alone. So how can we not use the resources that God has given us to extend his kingdom? How could we use his resources just for ourselves, given that they're his? As Job says famously, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. You know, we bring nothing into this world and we'll take nothing with us at the end. And so we need to consider the future. We need to look ahead to heaven because at the point of death, such worldly wealth that we may accumulate in this life is of no value. You know, if I've just used God's resources for my own comfort, for my own security in this life, rather than looking to God, then I'll have missed a great opportunity to use what God has given me for the sake of the gospel. You see, when you face death, it just won't matter how many possessions you have. You can't take them with you. Now, Lonnie Holloway of Saluda, North Carolina, was buried on Tuesday the 8th of September 2009. And he was buried in his car with his guns in the boot, or the trunk, as Americans say, and some extra cash for him. He had a $100 bill placed in his pocket. The 90-year-old's friends claimed he always said he wanted to be buried this way. He wanted to be buried in his Pontiac Catalina, and that's what happened. Uh, it was an unusual burial, clearly. It followed a funeral service at Saluda, sadly in a Baptist church, where hundreds of people were in attendance. And a friend stated of Lonnie, well, Lonnie said, they're going to have me with my hat on, driving down the road. Well, after Lonnie and his car had been buried, 
They placed a concrete slab over the top of his grave to stop looters getting at the guns. It just seems so strange and pointless, doesn't it? But he's not alone. Others have done this too, trying to take what they've accumulated with them as if that is the most precious thing to them. But of course, the only thing that goes into eternity is people. Only people are eternal. Make sure that people are benefiting from your generous use of the wealth that God has given to you. Just imagine the people that will be in heaven that you have helped. You know, those who you helped see get a Bible because you gave money to Gideon's or the Bible League or the Bible Society. Think of all those who are reached with the gospel because you supported some missionary that was serving in some far-flung nation that you'll never set foot on. Imagine all those that have been assisted by the way you've given to help people in need, perhaps after the bushfires that recently happened. I could go on and on, couldn't I? I haven't even spoken about the local church, which supports you know, reaching out to people locally here in Wollongong through evangelism and supports particular missionaries overseas that we're linked with. The opportunities are endless, aren't they, of just using all the resources that we have throughout our life to further God's kingdom, to see the gospel go out. You're going to have countless people coming up to you in heaven, aren't you? Just thanking you for your generosity, for the way you used God's resources that saw them come to faith so that there they are with you in heaven, enjoying the celebration that has been spoken about in the last couple of chapters. Countless people from nations all around the world streaming up to you. Or are you? You know, maybe you're missing opportunities here with what God has given you because you're not as focused as on eternity as you might be. You know, the film Schindler's List um, chronicled the heroic efforts of the German industrialist Oskar Schindler. He was very unselfish in his activities and through his efforts over a thousand Jews were saved from trains that were going to Auschwitz. You see, Schindler found out early on, that what was happening at Auschwitz might be avoided and he put in place a systematic effort to save as many Jews as he could. He worked out that through paying, he could buy Jews to work in his factory that he owned, which was part of the German military machine. And so he would buy workers who would then be saved from going to their death to work for him. And he entered the war as a, a super wealthy industrialist. And by the end of the war, he was basically bankrupt because he used all of his capital to save human lives. And one of the most emotional scenes is at the end of the film where he's saying goodbye and hugging his good Jewish friend who was his accountant looking after his books at the business. And as he looked around what was left of his workplace, he said to his friend, well, here is my car. Why did I keep this? I could have got rid of it. I could have saved 10 Jews' lives. Why did I keep this? And then he found another small possession. I could have saved another one with this. Why didn't I sell this and do more? See, Schindler was seeking to save people from physical death. But one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge all of humanity. And that point, the opportunity for people to escape eternal death will have passed. 
And so we need to think for ourselves about the opportunities we have. How is our investment going? Are we partnering in gospel work because of the hope that we have? Because we're so mindful of the future that we're heading towards in heaven. What a wonderful privilege we have to be blessed by so many things that we might use them in God's service. Well, it brings me to a second answer to this question. How are we to use God's resources? Well, not only are we to use them shrewdly, but secondly, we're to not allow them to master us. We're not to allow wealth, our possessions, our money to master us. You see, earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus has said that the tongue is the best indicator of the heart. And now he tells us what the indicator is for a person who is considered ready to be a good steward of spiritual riches, the spiritual riches of the gospel. Have a look at verse 11 with me. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? The way you handle your money is indicative of how you will handle other things. Indeed, spiritual riches and opportunities that God blesses with you, blesses you with. Ultimately, the opportunities to share the gospel, to handle the truth. And he goes on in verse 13 to point out that we really can only have one master. And if money has become our master, then it will get in the way of us ever handling that which is important. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We can't serve them both. You can't serve God and the great God substitute, which is money. Money not only buys food and shelter and the basics of life, which we all need, and God knows that we need them, but it buys influence, it buys status, it can buy power. Indeed, it can provide, provide indulgence and comforts that we festoon ourselves with. The Lord Jesus says you cannot serve those things and serve God as well. You must rule your wealth. Don't let it rule you. So be careful not to buy into the consumer culture of our day. Don't buy the lie that more is always more. They have to have everything, or worse still, the latest of everything. There's a slogan which has been around for several decades, which says, Live simply so that others may simply live. Of course, it's focused on the imbalance of wealth in our world today. It's making a point that uh, rich people in well-resourced, developed countries often seem to have everything, while there are those in poor countries that have so little. But I think we could make it more of a Christian saying if we were to change it. We need to make it Live simply so that we might simply give. See, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful about swallowing financial advice, about how to get ahead in this life. You know, I just, you should do this thing because it's a really good investment. You should get another one of those. You really should top up your superannuation because how are you going to have 
the money that you need so that you can live the life that you've become accustomed to when you're retired? How will you go on the holidays that you're so deserving of after all your years of work? Now, don't get me wrong. It's nice to have a holiday. We need to be prudent. We do need to provide for ourselves, for our family. The Bible makes that clear. 1 Timothy 5. We have an obligation to care for those under our support. But we can do those things and then be duped into the world's endless pursuit of pleasure, whereby money and possessions can buy things and provide things, and we can slide into that being the great God substitute. We find our comfort, our security there, not in our Heavenly Father. And this is simply the selfish idolatry of this world. And so we're not to be drawn into that kind of thinking as Christians. You know, there's a story of a rich industrialist who uh, went down to the sea one day and he saw a fisherman there who just had his boat pulled up on the shore and he was a bit disturbed because it was early in the day that he wasn't out there continuing to fish. And so he went up to the man and said, look, why aren't you fishing? The man said, well, I've caught enough for today. And he turned to him and said, well, why don't you catch more? Go and get more than you need. Well, what would I do with the extra fish? The man said. Well, you could make more money. You could buy bigger boats. You could get more nets. You could fish deeper and longer. You could have a whole fleet of ships and you would make lots of money. You'd be able to provide for lots of people. Well, what would I do then, said the man? Well, you could finally relax and sit down and enjoy life. What do you think I'm doing now, said the fisherman. You see, someone once said that contentment is when your earning power equals your yearning power. Contentment is found when we are in Christ and through the help of his Holy Spirit, we have insight into what this life is about and understanding God's word and his perspective on the things that we have. We need to value our heavenly inheritance far more than we look to our earthly inheritance. We have to long to use God's resources so that many more people might join us on that great day before God's throne. We shouldn't think that we need to worry about our daily needs all the time. And look, it's very easy to do that at a time like this. People are under pressure. I understand. But God knows our needs. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a wonderful statement, doesn't he, in Matthew 6, about God caring for us more than he cares for a bird, about God knowing about even the number of hairs on our head. God is our loving master. He knows our needs. He will provide them. But we need to be very careful that we don't turn from him and enslave ourselves to a new master, which is money. You might say, well, how could that happen? Do people really do that who understand God and his word or at least claim to? Well, have a look at verses 14 and 15 with me. We see here that it is possible for those who claim to know God to be drawn into the love and service of money if we ever needed convincing. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly 
is detestable in God's sight. What an irony here. Here are people who see themselves as the religious leaders of the people, who are the ones who are obeying God's word, and they are sneering at the Son of God for what he says to them. And it's because they have loved the great God alternative. They love money. And so the challenge, surely, for believers today is to rule your money, your wealth, with a view to eternity, because you're accountable to God. Look, as we conclude, we need to reflect on this. How are we to use God's resources in the light of heaven? That's the question for us all. And it not only relates to our use of money, but the possessions we have. It relates to our time, the gifts and talents we have, all the resources that God blesses us with. Maybe you think it is an issue, all of this. It's just an issue for later, perhaps. You know, you can't address it now. You've got such obligations to your family. You know, that your family is young. There's lots of pressures on you at this time. You need to work and look after them. You can't be thinking about being generous with God's resources. You can't be thinking about these other needs beyond your immediate family. Or maybe you've got lots of repayments. You've got a car loan. You've got a mortgage. I certainly do. And so once this debt's under control, then maybe you'll be able to think about gospel generosity. Or perhaps you're not really settled here in Wollongong. You know, you've only come here to study or you're working here for now, but you may move to Sydney or Melbourne or you may head back home later. But once you work out where you're settling and you're putting down roots, well, then you'll really give attention. You'll settle into a routine about how to use God's resources for eternal ends. Now, don't get me wrong, there are legitimate concerns in all of those issues. As I've mentioned earlier, we need to um, meet our debts. We need to live according to our means. We all have living costs. But I hope you can see the poor logic of that kind of thinking. God knows your needs, as we've already mentioned. It's his resources that you have. He's given them to you to manage. You see, now is the time to start the practice of being generous, of thinking about what God has blessed you with, the resources that you have that might be put towards his kingdom. Now is the time to set the pattern for your life. There's always going to be a difficult period coming up. Every stage of your life is going to have new challenges. You say, well, I've got a young family now. You know, I can't afford to think beyond the immediate, just the next week or the next day. But you know, when I'm a bit older, then it'll be better. But then your kids will be further along in school. They'll go to uni and they'll still be living at home and depending upon you. Oh, well, after I get through all of that, you know, when I'm, the kids are off my plate, well, then you'll retire and you'll be worried about your superannuation and how you might provide for yourself later. See, every stage of life will have a new challenge. There'll never be a good time to use God's resources for His purposes in this world. And so what we need to do is to prayerfully entrust each choice, each day, to God. The one who watches over our life, the one who knows our needs, the one who can guide us through the work of his spirit, that we may make choices daily that honor his plans, that seek to serve his kingdom, that seek to expand the sharing of his gospel, and not simply our immediate concerns. 
And God honors those who serve him and use his resources in that way for eternal purposes, who have their eyes fixed on heaven. May we long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, so that we might serve God our master fully with all that we have. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We pray that you might help us to see that even at a time like this, where financially we can be strained, that you call us to use whatever you've blessed us with in the service of your kingdom, that we might see many people come to be friends in the gospel brothers and sisters in Christ who will stand alongside us on that great day in heaven. That we might see many more be drawn into your family as you do your wonderful work of convicting them of the truth and bringing them to faith in your Son. Lord, help us to see the part we can play, not only with our words, as important as that is, but also with the resources, financial and otherwise, that you've blessed us with. Help us to see how we may use all that you have given us, which is truly yours, so that we might use it in your service. Strengthen us to do so, we pray. Help us this day, this year, as we look ahead, that we may be mindful of the eternal dwelling that we're heading towards, that we might keep our eyes fixed on heaven and bring that perspective to all that we do day by day. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.